So. <laughs> Sorry. This is the thing. This is the one. Absolutely. And now it almost couldn't have happened in a better way. Where did you want to be? So it was just like, ah. Oh. <laughs> am I funny? Now if I go over here, am I still funny? Better strategy. Yeah, a way better strategy. I never thought about that. Yeah, it's a workout. I don't see it five years from now that you're not my most famous friend. You really have to commit to something. Good to have something pushing you. That's that cool. That was really cool. Yeah, it might be cool. This is On The Cusp. Hello, I'm Ben Green and welcome to On The Cusp. This week, my guest is Madeline Walter. She's an improviser on the UCB Herald team, Cardinal Redbird. She's a writer for the UCB Digital Writers Room, and she's acted on TV shows like The Birthday Boys, Children's Hospital, and Garfunkel and Oates. Oh, also, she's the woman I'm going to be marrying soon, in May of this year. A quick reminder that On the Cusp can be found on a number of sites, including Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iTunes, and if you don't already subscribe to the podcast, I really hope you'll consider subscribing sometime soon. This episode is sponsored by Ty Pepper at 6219 Franklin Avenue. And it's worth saying that today's guest, Madeline Walter, is a big fan. When I asked her what her favorite dish was, she said the Thai coconut soup. So you might want to try ordering that the next time you stop in. Thai Pepper. They may only have 10 letters in their name, but they've got dozens and dozens of delicious meals ready to serve. It's Thai Pepper. So this episode of On the Cusp might feel a little bit different than your average episode since Madeline Walter is my fiance and I feel like I already know her very well going into this episode. Um, usually I ask my guests a lot of questions. Like I'll say like, where were you born? But with Madeline, I knew the answers to most of those questions. So at times I think it might feel more like a guided tour uh, through Madeline's life than an interview. At the same time, I think the fun thing about being a relationship is that there's always more to learn. And there were lots of points in this interview where Madeline would say something and I would come to understand something about her just a little bit more for the first time. And I feel like those new little discoveries can be some of the best. I started dating Madeline in February of 2007, uh, but she affected my life in a big way before we started dating. Um, when I started college at UNC Chapel Hill, I would tell people that I wanted to be a writer, but that was more conceptual because I had never really written anything. And whenever I would try to write a script, um, it didn't really work, and I, I had trouble getting past like page three. So. I would tell people, like, God, I really want to write a play. Uh, and they would go, like, yeah, I'm sure you'll do it someday. Um, but there was a certain amount of comfort because I knew that they had also tried writing plays, um, a lot of my friends, and they hadn't been able to do it either. I knew a lot of people like myself who would try to do stuff but had just as much trouble finishing as I did. And then I had a day where something big happened for me. I was walking through the halls of the Center for Dramatic Arts and I stumbled upon a poster on the wall that was announcing that a girl named Madeline Walter had won the Sam Selden playwriting competition for a play she had written called I'm Writing a Memoir. This was pretty crazy to me because I knew Madeline. Uh, I didn't really know her well. She was a girl who was in the same improv practice group that I was in at the time, um, who didn't come all that often, but uh, she was somebody in my life. And it was crazy to me that 
somebody who was somebody I felt like was a peer could actually finish writing a play, submit it to that competition, and win the competition. I promised myself in that moment that the next year I was going to write a full play and I was going to submit it for that competition and try to win the prize. Um, and then the next year came around and I, I did not do that. Um, I was not able to get my shit together. But the following year after that, I had started dating Madeline and... If you listen to this podcast, you'll get to hear the story of how she got me to a place um, and dating her helped me grow as a person to the point where I was able to finish my first full play uh, and submit it for that competition. And crazily, I actually did end up winning the competition too in 2008, uh, which was like what I felt like was the first really cool thing I had done in college. I wrote a three-act play uh, based around the song Puff the Magic Dragon, uh, which is still something I want to do something with out here in L.A. in the form of a screenplay or something like that. That was just the first of many ways that Madeline helped me to grow into a person that I feel really excited to be uh, right now. And I feel lucky every day that I was lucky enough to meet her in college and uh, that... I won the lottery and get to marry her in May of this year. I personally feel like she's the best person on the planet, and I couldn't be more excited for our life together. But enough of all this sappy stuff. Um, you'll get to hear, unfortunately, some more in the episode, um, which we should dive into. So here, uh, submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society, is my interview with my future wife, Madeline Walter. first memory of me in your whole life? My first memory of you is in, was in the student union at UNC. Um, and you were running around hiding behind chairs. You were hiding from probably Reed and Josh. Oh, wow. Do you know why? I think you thought it was funny. And it sounds like <laughs> not a great first impression. I know it was a fun, no, it was a it was a lovely first impression. I mean it was a it was a it was a very sweet, whimsical thing to be doing. Uh but, but it feels like at that point in your life you were a little bit less nonsense. Uh oh, I was I was full of business. I was all business. <laughs> um, you hadn't you didn't remember me from Chips Auditions or this was before Chips Auditions? I might have remembered you from Chips Auditions. I, to be totally honest, what I remember from Chips Auditions is mostly just myself and feeling like embarrassed and nervous. Like I didn't really have very wide eyes for the other people in the room. And I auditioned for Chips so many times that my audition memories actually run together a little bit because I think that was the third time I'd auditioned for Chips. So, you know, it was funny for you that was like, one of your first, like one of the first things you did at Carolina and 
the place where you met like a lot of the people who are still your best friends. But for me, it was like my third time auditioning for this improv group that like I'd already tried out for a bunch of times and was like not, you know, a bit like it was a, a group that I watched perform, but like it wasn't a major part of my immediate life. You know, my friends were involved in it, a couple of them, but like, I just think it happened, the two things happened at very different times in both of our, like, both of our college lives, you know what I mean? I had much wider eyes just because everybody that I was meeting were the first people I was meeting in college, and I was just a part of a sea of faces that you'd already met. Exactly. Well, also, though, I think it was just, like, for me, also, that thing was one of the things I was doing in my already mapped out week, you know, because I was a junior, Right? Like, right. So, you know, I, so I, like, I already, like, I was probably thinking about, like, a paper I had to write and the club meetings I had to go to, and also how stupid I felt to be auditioning for this improv group again. Like, you know, I feel like that's what was going through my mind much more than, like, oh, who's here? Who will I meet? I, the meeting part of college was sort of, like, over for me at that point. Will I potentially marry this nerdy yeah, kid? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never thought, I never thought that, um, that I was in the same room as my future husband. Like that, I guarantee you that never crossed my mind. <laughs> Open up your mind, baby. <laughs> uh, so you were born on May 15th, 1985 yes. in New York City? Yes. I was born in Manhattan. Um, my parents met in New York City. My dad's originally from Ohio, and then he, like, spent a lot of his 20s sort of traveling um, through, like, Mexico and Northern California, and actually Southern California, which is, like, kind of cool, because I didn't really realize how much he was, like, living in L.A., basically, for parts of his 20s. Like, he just recently told me some, like you know, some stories about living in, like, the L.A. area or near, like, CalArts and stuff. And I had sort of never... I had sort of never made that connection. It was cool to me to think, like, that my dad and I, for at least a chunk of my dad's life, weren't living totally different lifestyles. And then, you know, and and my mom wanted to be an actress. She, you know, she was in, when she met my dad, she was waiting tables in New York City. She'd studied at Circle in the Square. Um, you know, she was just doing exactly, you know, what I'm trying to do or very similar. And so it's kind of interesting because, like, I feel like I realize more and more that my story is, parts of my story are literally a hybrid of, like, parts of my parents' life, which are kind of, which is kind of neat. Um, to, to sort of understand. Um, so anyway, so I was born in New York City. I um, lived there until I was five. And then we moved to a suburb of New York. Uh, we moved to Maplewood, New Jersey, which is about 25 minutes outside of New York City uh, on the train. And my dad was still working in the city. Um, he's a television engineer. He, you know, works, like puts together systems of, uh, he puts together like television systems like things like control rooms or a scoreboard or his company puts them together um so he yeah so he was working in the city and then and then he eventually you know started just working in New Jersey and so I grew up close to New York City but very much in a small 
suburban New Jersey town. I remember your mom telling me a story about you as a baby that you were so smart that <laughs> like you were actually like two years old when you read your first word and that your first word was uh, that you read was learning animals. Yeah, I uh, is that yeah. a made up story? <laughs> I mean, I don't know because I was two, so I wouldn't remember. I I mean, I don't imagine. I can't. I don't. I there's no way I could have read the word learning annex when I was two. Because I, I remember learning how to read. And that was many years later when I was in first grade. I remember I learned how to read through learning the, uh, through reading the Dr. Seuss book, Hop on Pop. And that's, that's way less advanced than learning annex. Do you think there were signs that you were a pretty smart kid, like even like from one to five, or that there were things that were special about you? I don't know. Not any more than any other kid. You know, like, I think any... I'll tell you the things that my... Like, I'll tell you memories that my parents have of me, um, if if you want to hear them, but I think... I want to hear them. Okay, okay. But I don't, I, but I don't think any of these memories um, speak to me being special. I think every parent has memories about this, about every kid, because I think every kid is, is special. Um... But I, I have memories when I was a kid. I made a lot of um, audio cassette tapes uh, of singing and talking. Um, like my mom had a tape of me when I was like maybe like two or three um, singing the song I learned in preschool called like the wise man. Uh, yeah, the wise man built his house upon the rocks. <laughs> and it's a, it's about the story where, you know, the wise it goes like the wise man built his house upon the rocks. The wise man built his house upon the rocks, and then there's one who built his house upon the sand, and and his house got washed away. Like it's kind of a grim story, um, and I recorded myself singing that and running around the room so you could hear me getting like closer and farther away as I as I sang. I talked to a lot of people. I talked to strangers and. Um, I think I did speak and I spoke pretty articulately pretty young. Like, um, I pooped in my pants at preschool because I was terrified of using a public bathroom. And I only, I would, a couple of things I would only do when I was a little kid, I would only, I would only poop at home. <laughs> like my, like it was, it was a thing. It was like a, an issue. Like, um, I would only wear dresses, which was always also an issue because sometimes it's like cold and I just refused to wear a pair of pants. And I was really attached to my parents. I think probably because I was, I'm the oldest, so for five years I was an only child and I would like, I was, I was just like buds with my parents really, like really early. Like I spent my, my child, like a lot of my, you know, first five years of life, like my mom and I would walk all around the city. Like she would just take me everywhere. We would go to the Natural History Museum. We would like spend a lot of time at the Cloisters, which is this awesome, like sort of Renaissance museum that was really near our house because we lived up in Inwood. Um, you know, and she would just like, I remember one day where we just, um, we'd been reading this picture book called Bobby the Dog. You know, it's about this like French little dog who makes himself lunch, and um, and my mom like 
put together a Bobby the dog day for us. And we like went to the store and got all the things that Bobby the dog eats in that book. And, you know, and then my dad, like my dad would like loved to play, you know, he just loved to make up little games. Like we had this game we played called the smelly deli where like my dad and I were the people who owned this deli. And like, my dad was this like, he would go like, welcome to the smelly deli. He played like this character and we basically were doing like a look like character bits. Um, and like my dad loved to do like fun stuff. Like, you know, like, like I had these little animal sort of action figures or little animal figures. And my dad took me around one day and we just made like a photo story about those little animal figures. So like, you know, like put it in the mailbox in the bottom of our building and took a picture. And then I put it like outside, like it was going outside and then it went to the park. And then, you know, we got those photos developed and had a little photo book. So I, you know, so I, so I grew up really attached to my parents cause like it was, cause we had so much fun and they paid so much attention to me. They sound like great parents. Oh, it's the, they, mm. they're the best. I mean, they like, you even, you know, just like thinking about a lot of what I want to do or what I'm like enjoying doing right now, I feel like a lot of it had to have been planted really early because there was such a sense of play in my house growing up, you know, and, and such a sense of imagination, which I think came from my parents just like actually having fun you know, like, I, like I, I never felt like they were, like, playing down to me. I think they just got a kick out of, like, you know, just actually playing. And and so it was it was pretty cool. I love that. And when were your brothers Brian and Evan born? Yeah, so uh, Brian was born um, right about when I was four. Between, he, he's four years younger than me. So he was born when I was four. Um, and so he... He didn't live in the city for long. You know, we moved to Jersey when he was a baby. And then Evan was born when I was eight. Um, and how did you feel about having brothers when they came along? Uh, when I was little, I was not happy about it. I, um, I really liked being an only child. I was like, I was basically a little diva. And I, my said to my parents a couple things I said to him and I was really mad and I said I was almost an only child (laughs) I was I really for a while really was lamenting the fact that I just came really close to being an only child um (laughs) and my dad at one point he was like you know trying to sort of do a little bit of I guess reverse psychology or whatever when he was like, fine, you know what? We'll give your brother back. You know, go get all his toys, go gather them all up, and um, we'll, we'll send him away. And I stopped, and I got very quiet and serious, and I asked my dad, do I have to get all his toys? Oh, my God. I was, I was like, <laughs> a little... I was, like... I don't know why I was such a little bitch about it. I, like... <laughs> For early in our lives, I definitely, like, you know, played with my brothers. But, like, I don't know 
if I started like really being nice to them until a little later in life, like, you know, more like high school. Yeah. Like, cause I think even in, you know, probably even in high school, there was still that element of like, like I, I you know, I remember I'd be really mad if I liked a band and Brian liked it too. You know, cause Brian was closer in age to me. Like, you know, when I was at that age of not, of wanting to be unique, you know, Evan was a literal, he was a baby, you know, so there was no threat there. But like, you know, I, I, when I got my Ace of Base CD for Christmas, like, I feel like Brian must have started listening to it or liking Ace of Base and like that kind of thing would make me furious. Like, um, which is, so, which sounds so silly. Subsequently, they've become like your best friends yeah they're my brothers are the coolest they're just the coolest people they're like they're actually intimidatingly cool (laughs) they're just like great at sports especially like ultimate frisbee and great at music (laughs) (laughs) they're just and they're the best guys they're (laughs) i mean they're i i i just i really i really love them they're they're just like it's just so weird to see how similar our brains are. Like, you know, cause like we ju- we have such similar senses of humor. Like I remember going, um, like going to, there was maybe it was parents weekend at my first year of college. And I was at a Robertson scholars event or the Robertson scholarship was this, like I was in this like small scholarship program in college. So, you know, I was, um, at, a parents weekend event. And I remember my brother and I were laughing about something. And like one of the employees at the Robertson program was just like, wow, you guys really get a kick out of each other. And like, we realized that like, I thought everybody was like, thought it was all funny, but it was like just me and my brother. But it really is like it. I just, I don't know. I feel, I feel super lucky to have brothers and to have such cool brothers. Yeah, I remember uh, one of my first times hanging out with you and your brothers. You guys just went down like a YouTube wormhole of like watching videos for like two hours. And like you guys were all laughing so hard. And you felt like such a pack to me. Uh, I felt like kind of like an other. Oh like, no. You guys, no, it was, it was really fun yeah. just to see like how well you all operated and like how much you guys all thought the same stuff was funny. Yeah, it's, yeah, we definitely all think the same stuff is funny. So other than being sort of a diva about your brothers, what were you like as a kid from like five to ten? It's a good question. So basically, so five to ten is basically elementary school. Yeah. Um, I was always, I was a very obedient kid. I, um, you know, like all of my... I didn't get in trouble. Like, I never was a troublemaker. I was always, like, probably a little, like, too fixated on um, pleasing the teacher and, you know, being good. Um, I was, I think, you know, I I liked reading. You know, I really, like, I really loved to read. I liked, I just liked to play by myself. Like, you know, I le- like, I had just as much fun playing by myself as I did playing with other people. I think, you know, I like, I had a lot of Barbies, you know, and I could play with them for a really long time, you know, cause it, like, get like sort of makeup stories and cut their hair. 
Uh, I gave a lot of Barbies, like, really bad haircuts. I remember you saying that one of your favorite things to do in the summer was just, like, lie out all day just reading. Yeah. Where would you do that? In bed. Just in bed. Yeah. And when did that start at, that that was, like, your favorite thing? I would guess probably, probably in, like, fourth, you know, fourth grade. Like, whenever it was that I started reading, like, chapter books, you know? Like, I, I loved going to the library and getting specifically, like, scary books. And I read this series of books called The Witch Series, which was about, like, real witches. And, like, and that was, like, very scary and suspenseful. I read a lot of, um, I can't remember her name. But there was this, like, one writer who wrote a lot of, like, young adult scary stuff. You know, and then, like, a lot of Goosebumps and Fear Street. Um, but even... Like, I read a lot of Calvin and Hobbes. Like, one of the specific things I like to do in the summer was I would get up um, and then just stay in bed under the covers reading Calvin and Hobbes for hours. I was a big, I was a big reader. I loved reading. Do you feel like you were pretty confident as a kid? You know, I don't remember. I'm not exceptionally. And what I definitely wasn't was bold or loud or a class clown you know I was all I always veered a little more on the shy side but um but once I actually was in a conversation I was very comfortable so I think like not so different than how I feel now which is that like you know I don't I'm not the kind of person who walks into a room of strangers and everybody knows me in like five minutes, you know, or I'm not the kind of person who like, you know, in a group explanation for a commercial audition makes a bunch of jokes, you know, but I am the kind of person who, as soon as you like talk to me, you know, and look me in the eyes, or as soon as I have a reason to talk to you, I feel very comfortable and very confident in most situations. And I, I think that's how I was as a kid too. Feels like there was something that happened in middle school that was like jolting to you. Yeah, middle school is when I got less confident. Cause in middle school kids started being mean. You know, I was never I was never like bully bullied really. Like there were some mean girls who were mean to me. Like I carpooled with these girls um who I'm sure are all very nice, you know, who the girls I carpooled with were never specifically really mean to me, but they ran with this like really like nasty crowd of popular girls and I remember like the um girls in my carpool had gotten these like sort of like beanie babies but they're filled with sand and they're uh decorated with like psychedelic metallic colors um they got them at this uh little trinket shop downtown in Maplewood called Scrivener's I thought they were really cool and I went to Scrivener's and got one and all of their friends were really mean to me because they said I was a poser Cause I got a sand filled lizard and these other girls had done that. So it's like, I remember being really scared to leave class cause in the hallway, this one really mean girl had come up to me and said like, did you get a, like, did you get a sand filled frog? Like, did you? And I don't even think I said anything like, and she was like, poser. And it was so mean. I felt it just, it felt so bad. <laughs> um, and so that's how I felt for a lot of middle school. 
you know, got a little better in like seventh and eighth grade. Cause just, I think not being the youngest, um, made it a little less scary. And, you know, and I did the play, um, in eighth grade and that was fun. And, you know, you, I, and I was like maybe a little more popular. Um, but yeah, middle school, like a lot of the time felt scary. So you were doing theater already as an eighth grader? You, yeah. That was when you did Guys and Dolls or you did something Yeah, else? yeah. Oh. We, yeah, our, our eighth grade play was Guys and Dolls. Um, but, but I did theater. I did community theater starting in probably like fifth grade. All through middle school I was doing like, um, you know, I did a bunch of kids plays like, uh, like How to Eat Like a Child, which is a play um, based on a book by... Delia Efron, who's Nora Efron's sister, and she's, like, a humor writer, and she wrote this funny book, um, and it's just, like, kids, you know, giving tips to kids about fun things, I don't know, about, like, how to hide your vegetables from your parents, or, like, how to convince your parents to get a dog, and then, you know, we did another similar play called It's Saturday, about Saturday, uh, my mom directed that, um, I, I was in a very a very long play called Scheherazade, Her Sleepless Nights. And in which I, uh, it was like a Western reimagining of, um, Ara- of uh, Arabian Nights or a thousand and one. What is that? All right. Like, yeah. Arabian Nights. Yeah. And so I, um, essentially narrated that whole play and then did other plays, other adult plays in between where they needed kids. Like I did the miracle worker. Marie very angry that, um, I was not cast as Helen Keller. I was cast as just one of the other blind girls in the blind school. Yeah, that's um, an injustice. I never stopped being mad about that. I was I was never... You asked me how I was when I was a kid. I will say I was never a good sport. I, w- I have never been a bad... A good loser. I, like, I was always a little brat when I didn't get my way. Or mostly when I, like, uh, you know like lost a game or didn't get the part I wanted in the play. Like I could be a little like a little stinker about that for days. And how much do you see that in yourself now? Uh, more than I would like to admit. I'm, I'm still a pretty terrible loser. I think uh, like a good example is just, I remember like the, your first big audition out here was for Raising Hope. Yeah. Craig Garcia's yeah. show. And uh, you, it was like your first audition yeah. and you just didn't get cast as one of the leads on the show, right. which would have been completely life changing, but it was, yeah. it was your first audition ever. Yeah. And you were like so upset for so many days. Well, it was, you know, it was really sad because as, as utterly implausible as it was for me to get, um, a main role in a network pilot when I had an audition for anything else, you know, nothing was going on for me back then. You know, I like that was before I'd gotten on the UCB team. That was before anything had really happened in my life. And just for the whole week leading up to that audition, I had these visions of my new life and like these visions of like them going like, who is that? Oh, she's great. What a unique, interesting person. Like, we got to put her in this TV show. And then, like, having my life go from being sort of, like, boring and a little depressing to, like, 
exciting and sort of a fairy tale. And then to have it, to have none of that happen, like, and also so unceremoniously just to be like, yeah, you were great, but you weren't right. It just, it, it always feels like that always feels bad. And it still feels bad, even though I know so wholeheartedly that every audition is a long shot and probably you'll never get anything like just to get excited to walk in to this sort of high pressure situation where you have to do all this work and get dressed and do your hair and do your makeup for something that you won't get. Like I have to let a little part of myself believe that like this could be the day my life changes. And I know it's, I know letting myself believe that will lead to disappointment, but like, I don't know how else to keep going in those rooms and putting my best foot forward. But it means that I always get a little sad after yeah. every audition because, um, you know, cause, cause much less than that first one, but there's always a little part of me that goes like, today is the day, Madeline. <laughs> I think it's a really sweet thing about you. You always get your hopes up. Yeah, I always, I, I always get my hopes up. Um, and it's, and, and then I always get a little sad and now I think I just get over it way faster. So, um, so you had that experience with the Helen Keller play. Yeah, I had that experience with the Helen Keller play. I had that experience, uh, m- many a time in the school plays. Um, like I was cast as an, like an old lady and funny girl when we did it in high school and like, and I was pretty disappointed about that. Um, yeah, you were very young to be cast as old ladies already. Yeah, I um, may, I might, I might really hit my heyday when I actually turn into an old lady. Because <laughs> you've been specializing in it for yeah. a while. I've I've played a great comic old lady since I was about fifteen years old. <laughs> Um, I've seen pictures of you from when you were, like, 15. Yeah. And it's funny how, like, at 13, you look like a little girl. Yeah. And then by the time you get to 15, you look exactly like you look now. Yeah. You haven't changed a bit. No. Um. I have basically looked like a 30-year-old woman since I was, um, yeah, since I was, like, 15. And were there other ways that you were like yourself now in high school? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I think at the heart of who I I am, I've changed very little. You know, I think, like, the, um, the sort of proportions of different characteristics I have have, like, you know, like, the balance of, of personal attributes has shifted a little bit, but in high school, I was, um, probably first and foremost, very focused, very hardworking. Um, I think... I made my decisions a lot more out of um, fear of doing a bad job. Whereas, to like what I, I think today I try to act more out of like inspiration. You know, I try to make something when I'm excited about it and I try to do things because I want to, not because I'm like gunning for someone's approval or gunning to like, you know, get a good grade because obviously th- there's no such thing as that in the real world. But, um, you know, I think in in high school, I was, I remember very consciously thinking that if it was possible to get an A-plus in a class, then I should do it. 
Um, Where did that work ethic come from? I think it came a little bit from my dad. um, Because I remember even just in like middle school, even when I was young, my dad would always sort of say things like, if you start something, like make sure you finish it because like the most important thing in the world is for you to know you can count on yourself. And he would make, you know, if, if my homework was like really sloppy or something, he would encourage me to like do it again. So I handed in like good work and it wasn't, it wasn't like weird or obsessive or anything like, you know, and he didn't like, we didn't have to run our work by my dad before we handed it in. It was more like if I was up unusually late working on something and asked for my dad's help and he noticed that it was like a mess, he would encourage me to like put my best foot forward and always like do my best and do my best work. And you know, he, he would always say, like, do good work so you can, like, feel good about it. It was never, like, do good work so I can be proud of you. It was always, like, you know, try your best because then you can feel proud of what you did. And I think that really ingrained itself into me. Um, and then I think, like, maybe it also came from um, the fact that my parents, were, you know, didn't didn't push really. And they weren't like, you know, they they didn't really talk a lot about grades or anything like that. I think, you know, just sort of allowing to, allowing me to come to that on my own maybe made me like almost want to please them more or almost want to like do, do better. Can you speak to exactly what an overachiever you were in high school? So you were getting straight A's, you were valedictorian, you were building houses through some sort of organization. What was yeah. that? I, yeah, I, uh, just over the summer, I volunteered with an organization called COPE, which was the Christian Outreach Project, which was, we, we didn't do any specifically Christian outreach, we just fixed people's houses. <laughs> and what else? What made up your resume at the time? Um... I ran the science fair. I was captain of a garbage field hockey team uh, that went one whole season without even scoring a goal. But I, but I would, I would go to field hockey camp every summer. And you were a captain. I was a captain. Yeah, um, I did. I played lacrosse for two years, but then I did the musical instead. Um, the second two years, I. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I feel like that maybe was it. I mean, I took a lot of AP exam. Like, I took a lot of AP classes. I, <laughs> and got I, an intimidatingly good score on your SATs, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, I, I did. I, <laughs> after taking so, after, again, spending so much time with the tutor and, like, I, I wasn't, the only things that came naturally to me, the only class that came after, really naturally to me was English. Like, English was easy. Um, And everything else, it wasn't... I wasn't naturally, like, smart. I wasn't naturally, like, a whiz kid. You know, there were some kids who were sort of naturally just good at a lot of things. And and I... You know, I I wasn't... I, I was fine. But, like... But I really had to work hard to get, um, to like get a good grade on the SAT and to get, like, I was a very bad test taker, you know, and I would always run out of time. And I like the year I took the SAT, I remember 
I would every weekend I would take full SATs as practice timing myself and like kind of giving myself like time trials to like finish the test. And it took an absurd number of hours of practice that again, I think some kids who are a little more evolved and like a little more mature sort of realize that the SAT is a hoop you just have to jump through and like doesn't really matter. And for me, that wasn't even like that wasn't part of the equation. I couldn't I couldn't just write something off. It was like, it, you know, it was kind of obsessive. And at the end of the day, you ended up getting into like a lot of really good schools. You got into Yale. Uh, you got into, what were the other good ones? Oh, I don't know. This, 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 is, this, is this too much? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's because it just doesn't, I don't know. It's. I just think it's interesting. There are achievements that matter a lot when you, or feel like they matter a lot when you're 17. Um. And, you know, and they mattered a lot to me because... I mean, it's it's yeah. funny. It's just funny because none of that stuff ended up mattering for your eventual goal, which was to get on that Greg Garcia show. Right. You no, know? none of it mattered at all. Yeah, <laughs> I applied to 13 colleges. You know, I... Yeah, I, I got into... Ele- I got into 11 of them and got waitlisted at Harvard. How, why did you end up at UNC in the end? I, um... I got a scholarship to UNC. So so basically, I had applied to a bunch of colleges, and I was also looking for scholarship money because because um, college costs so much money. Um, and I had applied to Duke and UNC because there was a scholarship there that um, where like they I read online they also give you a laptop computer, and and I almost didn't apply. This was like one of those things, like my dad comes into the story again because I was like so exhausted from the college application process that I was like, I don't think I'm qualified for this. I was reading the bios of all of the members of the scholarship program and I was like, these people all look like they're head and shoulders more qualified than me. This is a waste of my time. I'm not going to do it. And it was my dad who was like, just, you don't know, like, don't write, don't take yourself out of the race. Like, just stay home from school, write the essay and see what happens. And I feel like that's a thing that really stuck with me. You know, that idea that like you're more qualified than you think for a lot of things, you know, cause I ended up becoming a finalist for the scholarship and, um, they flew me down to UNC to interview and to look at the school. Um, and I fell in love with it. I was just, you know, I had, thought before that that I wanted to go to Yale because I think when I was really young I just set my sights on Yale because it felt like a crazy challenge and I thought like wouldn't it be nuts if I could actually do it Um, and then after visiting Yale and after like staying overnight there was something about the energy of that campus that I just didn't I that just didn't feel right to me it was like it made me sort of nervous to be there felt like it was I remember when I stayed overnight, it felt like everybody on campus was talking about how they should be working and nobody was working. And it was just like, just, I, I kept saying to my mom, uh, I want to go somewhere where I feel like I can breathe. And I went to Carolina and just that, and that's, that's what it was. You know, it, like everybody I met was like, was friendly and cool and genuine and smart, but like they didn't seem to carry with them that sort of like anxiety that so many of the kids at these 
other schools I was looking at had. And that was so appealing to me. And I remember, you know, wanting the scholarship so much because it was a really cool program. You know, it was um, this sort of leadership and world exploration program where like being part of the scholarship meant you got a ton of really neat opportunities. But I remember thinking, this is the place I'm going to go to school scholarship or not. That's so cool. So then you finally got to UNC. And when you were there, what did you think you wanted to do like after college? Or what were you aspiring towards? I thought maybe I would be a lawyer. I thought maybe I would be uh, the president. I thought... Of the United States? Are, I mean, not, like, what I... Like you'd be in politics, maybe. I thought maybe I'd be in politics. I you don't think I maybe ever you'd thought you'd be part it, yeah. of like a three-lady improv group called Cat Ladies <laughs> with Marcy and yeah. Nicole. I never, I never thought I would be like doing. I never thought I would spend my nights like doing dildo, pretending scenes. to like <laughs> jerk someone off on stage or like, you know pantomiming blowjobs and feeling really proud of my idea to do that. Like, I I never thought that. I felt like, you know, I sort of gave up a lot of my creative stuff when I got to college, specifically acting. You know, because I, I was, I got to college and I think like I had the idea that it college was where you found the new thing that you'd be interested in. Cause you know, you go on all these college tours and everybody goes like, Oh, college is where I discovered that I really love history or I really love glass blowing or like, it's where I discovered my passion, you know, for photography. And so I sort of thought I was obligated to start at square one in college. And I also came into college with this sense that like, I was so lucky and I like, going to college was such a privilege that like it was my responsibility to just like figure out how to like give back and like that my life and that what I did in college could not be fun it had to be useful and so I spent a lot of my first couple years of college really trying to calculate what is the most useful thing I can do how is the how can I help the world the most so in my freshman year, I um, just bounced between a lot of different activities. Like I volunteered with a food drive competition where I tried to get more cans than Duke. You know, I, I volunteered with an organization that like helped cafeteria workers learn English, you know, I by talking to them. I um, got certified to like volunteer at a soup kitchen. I spent my summer after freshman year um, working at this like cool anti-coal, like a media center in Eastern Kentucky, making a documentary film about coal mining, you know, for an anti-coal mining group. Like I sort of was, I was looking, I was definitely looking for my purpose. Um, And I was ignoring, you know, acting or comedy or anything that felt too frivolous because I felt like, you know, it was my job to, um, to, to be as useful as I could be, you know? So I was really sort of comparison shopping for what my cause should be. So why is it that in the end 
you didn't become a lawyer? Uh, a couple, so like a couple things. Um, the turning point for me came uh, my sophomore year. It was the summer after my sophomore year. And um, I had just, I had had like a terrible second semester sophomore year. Um, so part of my scholarship program that I was in, so basically the scholarship is, it was endowed by um, this man who had a son who went to Duke and a son who went to UNC. So he wanted to endow a scholarship that connected the two schools. So half of us were based at UNC, like me, and half of the scholarship kids were based at Duke. And so for a semester, we had to switch. So second semester, sophomore year, I was living at Duke and I was part of this club that made internet, that was called Students of the World. And our job was to make international documentaries like documentaries about issues facing other countries and You're, did you found this group no okay no um some other students have found it or founded it but i had gotten involved a little bit in sort of social activist documentary work because of my internship that past summer and you know because i had been taking some documentary classes because duke has a really cool documentary center um but there was this club and they were setting they're setting up to go to China that summer to do a documentary about AIDS in China and I was just sort of a member of the group I wasn't particularly involved but then the president of the group um, had some kind of emergency and had to quit being the president and I remember thinking like this is a pivotal moment this is when I can step up and really contribute something to this group. Because again, my mindset then was sort of, if you can do it, you should do it. Like, um, And so I volunteered to be the president of this group and ended up having to spend the rest of my semester figuring out how to get like 13 Duke students and a bunch of cameras to China, knowing nothing about China personally, knowing no Chinese, Right, I was writing grants. Like we were like looking for funding. I didn't know really anything about AIDS. I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. And I was like, just absolutely feeling around in the dark. And it was like horribly stressful. And I was at the same time like really overwhelmed by all my schoolwork. And like was just like, it was just a terrible semester. And I, I got everybody to China sort of like just by by the seat of my pants kind of like um and I remember being like on the balcony of our hostel in Beijing and like looking over this like cool alley like just like a back alley of like people selling food and shit just in this cool random part of China where I'd never been before and I just remember thinking like I should be more excited. All I was was relieved. I was relieved that it was behind, that the work was behind me, but I wasn't nothing about the trip itself really excited me. I was proud, but not excited. And that felt wrong to me. And it felt like still nothing I had done in all of my trying to like find my quote unquote cause 
you know, or my calling or whatever, nothing I had done had made me as excited as like opening a play. And I like, and that sounds like sounded so dumb, but like, you know, I remember a year ago I read the alchemist and like, you know, the whole message of that book is the thing that you think you want to do when you're a kid is the thing you, the thing you should do. And like, that's the thing the universe wants you to do. And that just planted the seed in my mind that maybe I was overlooking something important by just completely giving up on, you know, acting and, and performing and theater. And this sort of added to that agitation. And by the end of the summer, after doing a lot of, you know, thinking about it and talking about it and, um, and sort of reading different things, doing a lot of journaling, you know, that like agitation sort of became uncomfortable enough that I couldn't ignore it anymore. And I realized that I had to change what I was doing or I wouldn't do anything important in my life because I would be depressed and everything I was doing, I would just be getting by, you know, because I, I didn't do an amazing job organizing that trip to China. I did a fine job, but like another person could have done that. And so I sort of started realizing that like that you need to chase a little bit of fun in your life because I think what's fun and what feels easy is that's like a clue to where your actual calling lies, you know, and that's a clue to a, a trail that might actually lead you to a thing that one day you could be great at. And if you care about making a difference, you know, that might be the way you do. You know, I, I, I think I was... Um, I think I sort of realized that um, I was giving myself way too much credit to think that I could just sort of do the math and decide what I was supposed to do and decide what like the world needed from me. I realized that like that was a little bit, it's like that was sort of a crazy way to think about my place in the world to begin with. You know, I could like chill out and just be a person and not think of myself as some hero, because that's insane. <laughs> so when you got back to UNC, did you start doing theater? Yeah, I um, I did my first play. I, auditioned, I like just found a flyer for play auditions, and I auditioned for a play, and it was the Vagina Monologues. Um, and that was my first play I did in college, and I loved it. It was so... It just felt like so good to be back on stage you know my parents came down to see it um and it it was great and and then I I enrolled in this really cool class where this like awesome woman who works at Northwestern now like had done a Fulbright in Ghana studying water politics and she shared her research with us and then we as a class like all wrote pieces of a play about water politics which you know, I think a lot of the things I did in college were plays that were really fun to make and then, like, nobody really enjoyed watching. But, like, but that was a really sort of powerful experience. Um, and then I did a play uh, my senior year called Danton's Death, which was an all-female production of an ancient French play that had never in history been successful. And it was also very long and not successful in college. But, you know... I, it, it just felt, you know, it felt great to be performing again. And I thought, you know, it's like I was making as much of a difference as I ever was doing that other stuff. And actually more because I was actually like making real friendships. And, you know, I was more of a pleasant human being to be around 
rather than like some anxious maniac who had an inflated idea of my importance in the world. Yeah. You also wrote a play? Yeah, I wrote a play um, that got a production um, at UNC. And like, that was one of the coolest things in the world to see was just, it was, it was a comedy and it was my favorite feeling in the world to watch an audience laugh at jokes I'd written. Yeah, I wasn't in that play. I just sort of like helped with the production and helped the director a little bit. And um, that was one of the most exciting, cool things maybe I've still ever done. Like I just remember, I remember feeling more proud of that than almost anything. And that play is also where we met. Yeah. Uh, I was in the play yeah. in a small role. Yeah. You uh, played um, Kid on the Train. Do you remember any of your lines? Yeah, well, I mostly made up my lines. Yeah, I know. Because I was too lazy to memorize the lines you had written. I know. Um, but it was stuff like, Yo, man, we we on the way to Long Island. <laughs> stuff like that, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff I think I made yeah. up. Yeah. Um, so we had already met each other through that improv group that we both did. Yeah. Um, but we really, but you didn't actually come to that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we really got to know each other was when I was in this play and more towards the end of the play, we like started going to lunches together. Yeah. I think it was uh, after the play actually. Yeah. I think it was right yeah. after. Right. We like the play made it so that like, I felt more comfortable talking to you like in one of the campus areas. Yeah. Uh, but how, how do you remember our relationship starting? I remember, um, uh, just some, I, I think the cool thing about our relationship starting is like, you've just told the whole story of how, what a crazy hard worker you were yeah. your whole life up to this point. Uh, and meanwhile, I was going through my life and I feel like I was doing like a very good job getting by through coasting. <laughs> um, and like always, like I was always funny and like could make teachers like forgive anything I did wrong just by making them laugh. Yeah. And being like, uh, you'll, you'll give me an extension. <laughs> um, so it's funny that like we came together at all because we were very opposite kind of people. I mean, you you looked um, like a professional woman. I looked as- like a like a businesswoman in her mid-30s. <laughs> I looked like a uh, 15-year-old um, in really big, like, n- uncool clothes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what is your account of us starting to date? It was, like, one of the best surprises. No, it was the best surprise of my life, basically. You know, it's like, I remember we had lunch. You know, I, well, I remember we you know, ran into each other in Grand Memorial in that student union, and we were just talking. I remember we always laughed. We had, like, a couple conversations, you know, earlier, like, before we met, you know, years before we ever started dating. I remember all of our conversations were mostly full of of laughing. Um, I remember having, like, a really fun, funny conversation with you in this study lounge, and then us deciding to go to lunch. We went to lunch based on the idea that we, like, uh, 
at the time were both pursuing people, um, like yeah. to try like in a romantic way. Yeah. And had like done things with them that we weren't sure whether they were dates or not. Yeah. So like I had gone on a on a questionable breakfast date. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'd gone on something similar. I think with, you had uh, professed your love to someone on their balcony. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like me. Um, so we went on something that like, in my email to you, I was like, I wrote a little limerick that involved the lines like that, at least like this certainly wouldn't be a date. Yeah. Um, and you swiped me up to the dining hall. And we just had a great time there. I It was just the most fun. We just had the funnest conversation. And I remember like, you know, just feeling like you understood everything I was saying on a really, like, fundamental level. You know, it was just, like, very... I just felt like we were immediately on the same page about everything. I, I felt like we spoke the same language. Yeah, and I exactly. Felt like I had had the experience a lot in my life up to that point of saying things and feeling like people didn't completely understand. And no matter how convoluted of a way I said things in, you always got it immediately. Well, the same thing with you. And I, well, I remember feeling like I'd known you forever. Like, I feel like we talked about that early on in our relationship, how it felt like it was this bizarre experience of like, you know, being a new person, but really feeling like somehow you were so, like an old friend, you know, or you were someone who I'd known for a long, long time. Um, it's corny, but I can't help but think of, uh, and I couldn't help but think when I, we started dating of that quote from Gonzo's song in the <laughs> Muppet movie, uh, when he's like, gotten a bunch of balloons and he's flying up in the air <laughs> and he says there's not a word yet for old friends who've just met yeah uh, uh, I love that and I, I felt like that was very much this yeah and I remember like also a thing I really immediately just loved about you was um I felt like you just always had something interesting to show me like I remember like this was before this was another interaction we'd had before we'd even started having lunch together. Um, we were at some dinner. I think we were at a fake Thanksgiving at, like, Chorps's house. And you showed me... Um, you just, like, called me into Chorps's bedroom to show me, like, a cool video of this guy who made, like, paintings of African children out of sand. And, like, I just didn't have anybody in my life that was showing me new things. You know, those kinds of, of new things. I felt like you just had very open eyes. And um, and that is still one of my favorite things about you. And for me, there's lots of things I love about you. But the biggest way that you changed my life was that in junior year, um, I felt like all through college and my most of my life, I would say things to people like, gosh, I like really don't think that I'm like working hard enough. I feel like I really want to like write a play or something or do something. And people would always say to me like, you're doing fine. Just like keep doing what you're doing. Like things are going to be okay. Things will work out. And you said to me, like when I said that, uh, if you feel that way and like you should be working harder then you do, like you, then you should work harder. <laughs> like actually write that play. Don't just talk about it. Write it. And that was, like, a huge shock to my system. I remember being, like, really irritated in the moment. 
but it I took it to heart enormously and it I really was never the same after that because um, I started working I started really trying at things uh, in a different way than I had before and finishing things and now that I, I like I feel like now I look at you and try to copy how well you start and finish everything you do. Um, but you, I really sound like a, you made me sound like a real hard ass. <laughs> no, the, I think you, you brought some, not at all. You're just the opposite of a slacker. <laughs> and that's really cool. You, you've got a fire lit under you and you can actually make things happen. And that, is really refreshing, I think, in the world. <laughs> um, so anyway, we started dating, um, and when did you decide you wanted to move to L.A.? Towards the end of my senior year of college. Because even though I had started doing plays and writing some plays and stuff, um, I still wasn't sure what my next step was. And I spent a lot of my senior year um, making some plans to sort of take the safe route into entertainment. Um, I thought, like, I thought I would probably move to New York and work more in the theater world, just because, in my limited experience, it had been more theater stuff. Um, you know, so I was applying for a lot of internships in the literary departments of different theater companies, like. Um, I also applied for a Rhodes Scholarship. Like, that was a major part of my senior year of college because it was uh, a really long process. You know, and I was a finalist for the Rhodes Scholarship, which was uh, kind of crazy. The whole process was very intense and crazy. And my, uh, and then, and then I, I was even still thinking about taking the LSAT and prepping to go to law school. So I, I was sort of still spreading my eggs across many baskets my senior year. And then I was starting to get rejected from some of these internships. Um, and the they were basically saying, you know, an internship in the literary department of the Roundabout Theater or whatever is more, is like you got to like work your way up to that and you have to, you know, get more experience under your belt. And I, I realized that that wasn't what I wanted to work my way up to. I had sort of applied to those jobs because I thought, oh, maybe that's like a safe way to sort of get in the world of entertainment, but it still sounds good when you tell people that. Like, it doesn't sound like you're just doing a crazy thing. And, um, but then as I realized, I was like, I need... It sort of hit me that I needed to just take a risk and actually run like head first towards the real goal that I wanted, not try to like take the safe goals that were nearby um or and so I thought about what I always literally just dreamed about doing in my most embarrassing dreams and it was being on like tv being a movie star being a movie star you started like a blog to record uh uh like how you were feeling at that time called i want to be a movie star dot blogspot dot com yeah and that was like such um 
an, a, such a like crazy thing to admit that I wanted to do, especially because I have no real training, no experience. Like, you know, I, all of my friends were doing, were like getting PhDs or going to law school or going to medical school. Like it, I didn't run in a crowd of people who were doing this, you know, because even like all of the people who like have become my friends now, um, from college, like they're all people who I met sort of later in my life or later in college. And so, um, so it felt kind of crazy, but I just, but it, it but it became very clear to me, like, you know, that I just needed to like rip the bandaid off, admit what I wanted to do, go to LA and like not try to get a job that sounded good, but just like put my mind to try to trying to do this thing that sounded like a fantasy life to me. Cause I was like, well, if I can put my mind to like getting a bunch of kids to China, if I can put my mind to producing, you know, a full length play when I've never done that before, like maybe if I put my mind to accomplishing this implausible thing of like, you know, being in movies and television, like maybe I have a shot at making that happen. And I like, I owe, I owe myself a try. (laughs) So you moved to LA in September of 2008. Yeah. And you moved into the back room of, uh, the, the lady who voices Jimmy Neutron on TV, her mom. Yes. It was her mom's house. Yes. Um, and you would call me and you would always be crying. It was terrible. I was scared and sad every day. I was still a senior in college. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, um, yeah, I moved out here. I stayed with your cousins, you know, cause I didn't know any people. Um, I just remember, like, the first, you know, maybe, like, the, my third day here after after I arrived and spent, like, my first two days sort of getting a tour of L.A. And, like, your cousins were, like, such great hosts. And they, you know, showed me around and just, did, like, they, they were just, you know, we had a couple of days of, like, very festive sort of welcoming stuff. And then I remember, like, the first day they both went, you know... They were both out of the house. I think, like, you know, they had to go back to their real lives. And I was, like, in their house by myself for the first time. Like, and I was just so overwhelmed and terrified because I had to, like, put a... I had to figure out how to put my life together. And I know... Because I was, like, before I, I had nowhere to live. I had no job. I had... Like, I, I couldn't even begin to think about how I would actually start to, like, pursue any creative stuff. Like, that wasn't even on my mind. My mind was, like, just full of, like, okay, now how do I, like, now what does my life look like out here? Um, and I called you, and I cried. I called my parents, and I cried. <laughs> and then and then Annie and Sarah came home and took me out to a nice dinner. And when they found out I'd been crying all day, they were very encouraging and helped uh, put me in a better mood. And I think that your whole first year in L.A., like, wasn't very glamorous. 
Uh, no. You worked at a print shop. Yeah. Like doing mass mailings. Yes. Right? Yes. And <laughs> you tutored kids for like not a whole lot of money. No. Like driving out to Malibu. Yeah. Uh, to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I tutored a lot of kids like for free because I was trying to get more, t- like I was trying to build my credibility to get tutoring clients. Uh, I I had deep conviction that like improv could be a great way for you to like break into the TV and film world. Um, and you like really believed me. And so you took a groundlings class yeah. and like you failed that first yeah, groundlings I class you did. Failed my first groundlings <laughs> class. <laughs> um, and so how did things turn around ever? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I like, um, like mostly I when I started taking class at UCB, um, that was part of things turning around. You know, a couple a couple things happened. Um, I started like doing enough tutoring that like my day to day survival became a little less scary. Like, um, and so. That maybe happened a year after being in L.A. And slowly built, like, an essay counseling service um, where, like, you, like, at first doing work for free, but by and by doing work for $30 an hour, then $40 an hour. And that number escalated over time. Yeah, and and I did, like, I really pounded the pavement. Um, Maybe the most Hollywood thing I did had nothing to do with acting, but with much more to do with essay tutoring. I, I remember driving to... I remember contacting every single private school in Los Angeles County um, and meeting with as many of their counselors as possible to like uh, pub my tutoring business. I drove all the way out to Woodland Hills and gave a presentation there. Like I was just really hustling on the essay front Um, because a thing that I felt pretty strongly about when I moved here was that I didn't want, I didn't want to get a day job in the industry because I really, really wanted, I wanted a day job that was flexible so I never had to compromise it for auditions um, or for any creative endeavors. And um, I also felt strongly that I wanted a day job where I didn't want to, I didn't care about impressing the people too much. Like, and I felt like if I, even if I was a PA on something, I would want to do a good job because that was the, that's the world I want to work in one day. So um, that's why I spent so much time really trying to like build a good gig with tutoring. Um, but when, but so, so things started to pick up a little bit cause life got a little less, like got a little easier to pay for. Um, and then taking class at UCB was just such a great sort of relief because I immediately felt like sort of understood and I felt like, funny for the first time and like I I mean I wasn't good I remember you like you were in town for my one-on-one show and I like I ate it you know I wasn't I wasn't good and I definitely didn't feel like I was a standout in any of my classes but like but every now and then I would have like a great day in class what do you think were the things that held you back a little bit in improv as you were starting out confidence and I think also I was just like I had barely ever done it, so I, like I think it was just not not being at all like not knowing what to do in a scene and and like not 
it was more than not even, it was more than not trusting my instincts, but it was like, I almost like hadn't learned how to like even hear my instincts yet. Um, and, and I, I think that one of your biggest things, uh, if I can say this myself, yeah. uh, your problems originally in improv was that you do, because you so much hate not doing a great job at things, yeah. if you were doing something like a Herald and then your first beat you didn't do a great job, you were beating yourself up in your head for the rest of the show and you spiraled. Yes. Yeah, I am... So grateful for improv because improv I, is what beat the perfectionist out of me. You know, cause I, yeah, I mean, you, you know this better than anybody, but like, you know, I, so I, um, took class for a year. Who did you come up with? I came up with, um, like Dave Tooney was Dave in your Tooney classes. Dave Tooney was in my 101 class. Like, um, in my 401, it was like Justin Michael and. Ryan Stanger was in my 401, but it was my, but that was like my first 401 and they were like retaking it. So they were, they, those guys, you know, they're sort of our class now, but they started a little bit before me. Yeah. So I didn't know any of them. Like they were all strangers to me and a little intimidating because, you know, they seemed to all be, they were also good and all kind of knew each other. Um, but my first Herald team was when did you get on your first Herald team? I got on my first Herald team. I think auditions were at the end of two thousand nine. So I'd start. So I got on a Herald team very fast. I just finished my first four hundred one, and I was on Bangerang. I was one of the original members of Bangerang, and that was like all of the best people. You know, it was like Betsy Sodaro and Lauren Lapkus and Ryan Stanger and Adam McCabe and Jacob Reed and Scott Davis was on. You know, with me and. um Tony Dave Tooney yeah. and Ryan Meharry were not on yet. No, Dave Tooney and Ryan Meharry replaced me and Scott. Um, and I got on that team and I was uh, terrible pretty much because I wanted so much to be perfect or I wanted so much to feel like every show was a great show um, that it, 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 it just sort of stepped on all of my instincts and it, you know, it's the opposite of what creates good improv, you know, it's, and I, and I, it was, I had, um, a big crisis of confidence too, cause everybody on that team was so funny. Um, and I felt really like I, um, like I didn't deserve to be there, you know, cause I had gotten on the team my first audition and I, and I really did have a I had like a great audition, but it was still at a time when um, my improv was very inconsistent because I had only been taking classes for a year and I hadn't performed really at all. Like an indie show was still terrifying to me. I was on, on one indie team and we'd done a couple shows and before every show, I still felt like kind of sick to my stomach, nervous. I just sort of like lucked into a great audition um, but, but I, I was still all over the place in terms of, you know, how good I was on any given day. And that's, I think fine, but, but I had such, um, I was so hard on myself that when I had a bad show, I n- never forgot it. It would ruin my whole week. And like, I'm, s- I'm so grateful that I had that experience because 
I feel like I learned so early what um, what a crippling attitude that is to have. And I've, you know, sort of tried to approach everything else with a much more forgiving attitude. And, you know, like, just, just, I, now as much as I can, I try to do something, whether it's writing a script or doing an improv show or doing an audition or acting in a scene. I try my hardest to do it and then throw it away. Um, and it, that's been a way more useful way of operating than being so obsessive and fixated on doing everything great. Were there any cool things that came out of being on that team? Oh yeah, a lot of cool things. I mean, it's um, it was it was also first of all it was, it was very fun. Like when I wasn't when I wasn't like worried about my own self. Like I mean, it was I had a great time on that team. Um, but the other cool sort of tangible things ha- came from that. Like I got my uh, first agent. I got my commercial agent through being on that team. And that was a big thing for you because really over time, like being in commercials has been what's ended up like paying your bills for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it was so lucky. I, you know, I started booking pretty quickly. Like I, you know, I booked the second audition I went on. Um, and I also credit UCB with preparing me for, doing a commercial audition, you know, cause like it's, I don't know, you know, just so good at preparing you to be like quick and funny and, um, memorable. And it, it was also the thing that like introduced you to Neil Campbell, who was the artistic director at the time who ended up, uh, directing your one woman show. Yeah. And like, and that was such, that's like, was such a cool turning point too. So I, you know, I, um, about halfway through my first, you know, year on a team, I started working on a one-woman show because I really wanted to write one for a while. And I um, approached Neil and I brought some of my, like, early monologues to him, which now that I've read them, uh, like, years later, they're not funny and borderline crazy. But, like, but Neil was just so cool. And he was so supportive and he was, like, great pick one of these put it up at not too shabby which is the free it used to be at midnight on friday um at ucb you know it was a a free show where you sign up and you can like put something up that a sketch up that you're working on and so he was you know he was like put it up at shabby um and then after i'd put a couple of characters up at shabby he offered to just direct my show and helped me so much just like he's the one who really like taught me how to um like sort of hone something and shape it comedically like you know like his whole I came to him thinking that like my one woman show should be like something very conceptual and like something with like some interesting theme and I was thinking about the big picture very much first and he was like really um, a proponent of just trying a bunch of characters and finding the funniest and then putting those together and then finding a theme. And like, I still feel like uh, when I'm writing something, I approach it sort of from that standpoint of like, 
not looking at the forest for too long because like if the trees all suck, it's not a very funny forest. Um, and so then my one woman show was, um, was so fun to do. And, um, you know, and that's how I got my manager, um, which felt like a very cool, you know, kind of step, uh, also to now to have a manager, um, you know, so like basically, so getting on my first team is what set all of the dominoes in motion that have made me feel like I can say I have a career out here. My, you know, it's still a little career, but like everything that makes me feel like I'm actually acting and writing out here in LA has come from UCB. So can you kind of give the speed version of what happened after that, after you got um, taken off of Bangarang. So I spent like, you know, a, a month feeling like very, uh, sad. And then I got put on Bonafide, uh, which was a mod team that had been in existence for like a couple of months. Um, and I was put on as a replacement, uh, for one of the actors who had left. And then a couple months later, my one woman show went up. Um, and then later that year, I'd also started performing with a cool improv team called Rough Cut, which was like a lot of awesome people like Susie Barrett and Will McLaughlin and Colton Dunn and Joel Spence. And, you know, that made me feel a little bit more legitimate as an improviser. Cause I, you know, when, when you get kicked off a team for a while, you think, oh, maybe I just suck and this, and improv is not for me. Um, so Rough Cut was instrumental in sort of boosting my confidence back up. Um, I also saw you double down in improv. You were, you went back into boot camp. You would do all these workshops. You did way more indie teams than you ever did before you were on Herald Night. Like, you really committed to improv in a bigger way than ever. Yeah, and I started, like, enjoying it more, I think. You know, because, like, because I realized how, um, like just what a waste of time it was to worry about it. Like, you know, and, and I think also when you're not on Herald night, you start like relishing all of your performance opportunities a little more like, um, and so I was just, I was finding what was fun in it again for me, you know? And I also like felt like I was having the sort of improv development that a lot of people have before they get on teams, you know, just because I think like I had this fluky thing where I got on a team early. I think I was having the two years of getting my sea legs and performing a lot. You know, I was getting those two years under my belt that I think I should have gotten before I was ever put on a team, yeah. you know? So it was like a little bit of a false start, but instead of quitting and never doing improv again, which, you know, for a second, I wanted to do because it was like so embarrassing to be taken off a team. I instead just like kept on performing and kept on practicing and felt like, you know, little by little, I got as comfortable as I should have been going into my first team. And then um, I auditioned once uh, the year after I was taken off and didn't make it, but I, you know, I didn't have a very good audition. Um, and then a year later I auditioned and it was really at a point in my life where I felt like, um, like I very much didn't, like, I, I felt like I would be 
really like fine whether I got on a team or not. Like I was, I, I remember specifically thinking I was auditioning um, to be on a team because it would be a fun, like a fun extra thing for me to do. Um, and that's when I, you know, and then that time I got back on a Herald team. Um, Made it onto Cooper. Yeah. I did that team for a year. Yeah. I love those people. Yeah. And then uh, when that team was uh, dismantled, yeah. you got on Cardinal Redbird. Exactly. Which is yeah. now going into its second year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and both of those teams, like, have impacted my life in such fun ways, you know, you know, Cooper, even though Cooper was broken up, that's where I met and became friends with, like, Marcy Jerome and Nicole Byer. And now one of my favorite improv teams I do is Cat Ladies, which is a three-person improv team with Marcy and Nicole. Um, you know, and it's how I met or how I became close with Josh Simpson. And, you know, now I'm part of, a, like, a, this cool um, sort of political show he does at UCB called... Um, take it from us. Um, and I just finished like writing the first draft of a web series with Paul Welsh, who I met on Cooper, you know, so that was like really like fun and cool. And it was also just cool to be back on Herald night and not feel like garbage. Um, like not feel personally, like, like I was garbage. And, um, and with Cardinal Redbird, that's been a blast of a team to perform with. And like, it's my first, Harold team that um, has gotten a second year or that I've gotten to, you know, participate on for more than a year. And so it's been such a cool experience to like grow over a long period of time with a team. And then also the interesting thing and unexpected thing that's happened on Cardinal Redbird is like I got my first theatrical agent through that team. And I had sort of thought that, um, that I wasn't going to get much industry success from improv like I thought I've been performing improv at UCB for several years now so if anybody was going to see me and like me from improv like that would have happened already you know I was really um I've really been thinking about improv as like something I do very much for me and because I love it like not you know not for any sort of quote-unquote industry reasons but just sort of by the luck of the draw, um, an assistant at Innovative, which is where, you know, where my theatrical and lit agents are, like knew a lot of the people on Cardinal Redbird and was like coming to our shows a lot um, and had become a big fan of the team. And that ended up really helping when um, when somebody had sent a script that I wrote to Innovative and um, and this assistant recognized my name mostly because of Cardinal Redbird. So it's, it's, it's funny to me how by just sort of sticking to this, sticking with this thing that I've really come to love and that for a while was a challenge but felt like sort of um, a worthy challenge and an important personal challenge for me. It's been fun to see the unexpected stuff that's come from from that sort of journey. It's really cool. And another unexpected thing that feels like has happened is 
that writing has become a big part of your life. Yeah. Which, that's not something you moved out here thinking would be a big part of your life, but your manager really encouraged you to write, mostly so that you could, like, write scripts that you could potentially be pitched to be in. But what's happened in your writing life? Yeah, so... I think I had, like, when I moved out here, I think I had, like, a little bit of an over-simplistic idea of um, of what my path would look like out here. Yeah, because when I first moved to L.A., you know, I had obviously had writing background um, in playwriting and stuff, but everybody said you have to pick one thing. Like, people, like, really said, like, you gotta pick, like, acting or writing or comedy or drama because, like, People get confused if you do more than one. Um, and so I really did focus on acting when I moved out here. And also a part of why I focused on acting was because um, I knew that that was something I really wanted to do. And I and at that point in my life, nobody looked at me as an actor. Like even when I produced the play that I wrote in New York, which I did before I moved to L.A., I wasn't in it and... And I don't even think anybody knew I could have been in it, you know? And so I so I really, re- there was something inside me that really just wanted to own my desire to be an actor because I'd sort of like skirted around it for a long time. Um, I think because I was like a little embarrassed to admit that's what I wanted. Um, and then, and so in the past couple of years, um, I've come back to writing a lot more because um, I've noticed that like a lot of the most exciting things that I see are things that people have written, you know, like things that people have created. And I've also, um, I've started to realize that like I have a lot to say and that I like, you know, a lot of times I'd be doing especially early on in my time in LA, you know, I did so many student films and I, you know, acted in so many people's projects and I would... They were stupid. Yeah. (laughs) Not all of them. But most of them. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this, this guy thinks he could write a movie or a film or a sketch or whatever. Like, so can I. You know, and I think like, that's why writing my one woman show is so satisfying. And, you know, I actually like, um, and I, I known that writing was important to me before my manager said it, you know, because I very specifically didn't want to pursue getting like getting a manager until it was from my one, one woman show. Cause it was important to me that my reps would know that I was a writer and an actor. So like, the fact that I can write has always been something that, like... Like, I, I don't think I ever forgot that I can write. And I think in the past couple of years, it's become very clear to me that I should write. Yeah. You've written uh, two pilots and just outlined your third, yeah. which I read the other day and cried a lot when I read it because <laughs> it was so good um, and moving to me. Um, but you're just such a good writer, and I'm really excited about what your writing life is going to look like out here in the future. My, like, my life, I I always, when I haven't been writing, 
the periods of my life when I haven't been working on a writing project, it's, I felt a um, tangible missing piece. I am absolutely the happiest when I'm performing and acting, and that's a part of my life, but when I'm also working on a writing project. Like, that's when I feel that I'm working at all of the things that are my goals. So as of today, you've shot roles on the CBS show The Defenders, a little role on that show, yeah. a little role on Weeds, a little show on Children's Hospital, a little show, a little role on Garfunkel and Oates. Um, are you satisfied with how your acting career is going right now? It, it kind of depends on what day you ask me. Like, you know, sometimes I feel great, like... But then a lot of times I feel like like a lot of doubts about like whether it's out, like whether I ever will have an acting career, you know, cuz everything that I've done like the longest thing I've ever done is like um I did like a 30 second scene on Garfunkel and Oates. Like my, my I have weeds on my resume, but you can't even see me. Like, if you listen really hard, you can hear my voice. And, like, the same thing with Defenders. Like, I was wearing a green jacket, so you can kind of see... If I if you look for a green jacket, you can kind of see me in the Defenders. And, you know... So that, like... But, but then, at the same time, like, sometimes I feel great. Because, like, last year I had my first pilot season where I auditioned for more than like one or two pilots and I felt really good in a lot of those auditions and I felt like I made people laugh and I got not a lot but I got one call back and but that was enough to like boost my confidence but again that what but then if I look at it but then you know in the same breath I look at the fact that I've never tested for anything and I've I can count the I can count the theatrical callbacks I've gotten on one hand. And when I think of that, sometimes I go, maybe I'm just not very good. Like, you know, maybe I'm one of those people who goes into a room and the casting directors go like, oh, she's fun, but she's not an actor. Um, and I feel like that a lot. Like, um, like maybe I'm just not good enough to do anything more than something, than a, a role where you just can see my jacket. Um, and I kind of feel like all it would take is you having your own thing, like a broad city kind of thing, or like Tina Fey got had out of 30 Rock for people to see like what could be very special about you as an actor on TV. Yeah. And I also like, more and more I'm very like um underwhelmed by the roles that are out there for like women and women my age like you know I, I just feel like I'm feeling much more drawn to the long shot of creating something as opposed to the long shot of crossing my fingers and hoping I get cast in something because they're both big long shots but like Something feels better to my soul about, like, putting most of my chips in the long shot of, like, making something that resonates with me instead of, like, hoping 
to get to play someone's disapproving wife. <laughs> yeah. So what would be your absolute dream for where you would be five years from now? Um, my absolute dream would be to have a show like Broad City anywhere. Like, I don't even, it wouldn't have to be like even on TV. Like it could be on like some corner of the internet. Like Hulu or something. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it could be on like a pretzel website. I don't care. Like, you know, like (laughs) just like I would love for like someone to want me to make something. (laughs) Um... <laughs> is Utz a pretzel company? Yeah. Utz we presents. should write to Utz presents a 35 year old businesswoman. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I would love to be, you know, just creating stuff. And, and it doesn't even have to be something for me to star in. You know, I just basically, basically, I want to be writing and I don't want to lose the fact that I'm that I'm an actor you know I, I like I really don't want to lose that again because I feel like I I've lost that identity you know when I was in college and I I really love I love performing and that's so fun for me um you know I, I would love to be like I, I would love to basically you know do like what like Mindy Kaling did on The Office where she like wrote on that show and also was like just a weird side character. Um, so I, I don't, you know, I, in five years, I feel like I would um, like to feel like I've gotten some professional traction in either acting or writing. Cause I feel like they'll come together at some point in my career. And I feel like, you know, it just, maybe individually, you know, maybe like one will progress before the other one progresses, you know, like, but yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to have some kind of job. What do you hope our life like together looks like and the rest of your life as a whole? Yeah, I hope, I would like, you know, I would love for us to work. I mean, like my dream would be for like, you and I to be like a writing team, you know, for us to create a show together or to like write movies together, like, you know, Anna Fleck and Ryan Bowden, like, you know, they write and direct all these awesome movies as a team. They got divorced, but I don't want us to get divorced. You don't want us to get divorced? No. Or you do want us to get no, divorced? No, I don't want us to get divorced. I would like for us to is to get married in May and then stay married forever. Okay. Let's get married and then talk about whether we're no, going to get divorced. I don't want to. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, but my like, my sort of dream for both of us is to um, have lives where we feel very much like creators um, and where we have like agency over our own work and where we can like, take risks and tell the stories we want to tell and hire our friends and like make things that we feel really proud of making. Um, 
And I want to do it together because I, I always envision a life where work is a big part of my life. And so like, and I also envision a lot, like, obviously I envision a life where you're a big part of my life. And so I feel like, you know, that's, so I want like, because because what I want to do feels like the biggest adventure in the world. Like, it just sounds like the coolest life to me for us to do that adventure together. I love that. Well, Madeline, thank you so much for coming on this show. (laughs) (laughs) In our living room. Thank you for having me. Can we go to sleep now? Yes, I'm very sleepy. Me too. (laughs) It's the latest uh, episode of all, the latest recording of on the cusp ever it's 1209 a.m oh, let's sleepy. go to sleep yeah i love you good night good night <laughs> i got jealous of the moon for the time we had with you So there you have it, my interview with the future Mrs. Ben Green, Madeline Walter. Just kidding. Uh, no, nobody's ever going to call her that. She's very much her own person. Uh, if you want to find out more info on Madeline, you can go to her website, www.madelinewalter.com. And if you want to see her perform live, you can see her performing with her Herald team, Cardinal Redbird, on Mondays at UCB Franklin in Los Angeles. Again, if you like this episode, I hope you'll subscribe and get to hear future episodes with people I'm not planning to marry. Special thanks to Casey Trela and Hi-Ho Silvero for all the music in this episode, to my sound editor, Joe Burge, and to my wonderful producer, Cece Pierce. This has been On the Cusp. Be-ne-ne, 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 be-ne-ne. That's your outro music. <laughs>